Book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse number 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And one of the four beasts, or the living ones, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. They should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And looked, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed him. And power was given unto him, over them rather, over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge the blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, and as a fig tree casts her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains." And they said in the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And today, just for a few moments, we're going to talk about the beginning of the end. Our Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments as we consider your word. And Lord, give effort and attention to try to understand and comprehend, the, well, not so much the technicality, but Lord, the spirit and the heart of what you want us to take away from a text like this. Lord, I pray you'd lend the Holy Spirit's help. And Lord, may we leave here today mindful of not just the reality of these events that are coming upon the earth, but Lord, that we might have an appropriate response to them. And so I ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing for that length of time. The Bible teaches that the world and human history 
are moving determinedly towards a final cataclysmic end. And in between now and that time, human sin will grow appreciably worse and more bold and more antagonistic towards God. I, I am persuaded that we are seeing much of that in the attitude and the philosophy of contemporary worldwide culture today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of that which is good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. I, I would understand there would be elements of this kind of disease throughout human history, but we would, be, we would be not very thoughtful to not see that these kinds of behaviors are on, on the rise and increase today. We see it everywhere. Narcissism, hedonism, moral depravity, sexual confusion about identity, perversions of all sorts. These are easily recognizable today as, the, as progressing as mainstream thought and culture today. Not only here in America, but really globally around the world. Selfishness, greed, and lies consumed with the pursuit of many worldly priorities are what many people are chasing after today around the world. However, a far greater time of evil is on a horizon. A day is coming where there will be unrestrained evil. We will experience a demonic invasion unlike anything this planet has ever seen before. There will be cataclysmic wars, famine and pestilence, and cosmic upheaval. The Bible calls this time the time of tribulation or great tribulation. Thripsis, this, that which squeezes and presses uh, humanity and mankind. And, and the tribulation is followed by what the Bible calls the great day of the Lord. And this includes the physical bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, coming from heaven with a sword in hand, bringing consummation of the age and final justice to this wicked planet plagued by sin. This great ending and tribulation that precedes it are referenced throughout the Word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the Bible says, Alas, it's a, it's a word of bemoaning, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's troubles, to speak of Israel's troubles. But he shall be saved out of it, something we will discuss in the weeks ahead. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 24, you don't need to turn there, but I just want to read a few texts to you. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse number 18, it says, And it shall come to pass, that he that fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that cometh up out of the, the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. And in the window from, the, from on high are open, and the foundation of the earth to shake. The earth will be utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed 
like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners and gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prisons, and after many days shall be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed, and the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before His ancients gloriously. And just a few pages over in Isaiah chapter 34, it says, Come near, hear, hear nations to hear, and hearken ye people, let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all the things that cometh forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. This has probably historical reference in this day, but also to the great day of Armageddon. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down. As a leaf falleth from off the vine, the same description of Revelation 6, as falling fig from the fig tree. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The earth shall quake before them, and the hair shall tremble, and the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw from the shining, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And the same question is asked in Revelation 6. Who, who can stand? Who can abide it? In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up. Second Peter chapter 3 gives us the most graphic and descriptive detail of this coming day. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with the great noise, and the elements shall melt with the fervent heat. We're talking about exothermic reactions when atoms break down between each other, releasing nuclear energy that will one day destroy the universe itself. And the elements shall, be, shall melt with the fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works of theirs shall be burned up. The Bible adamantly teaches the day is coming when that all that we know in this physical universe will be consumed, it will be burned, it will be torn apart, and God will start creation over again. He will initially reign for a thousand years and usher the redeemed into eternity in a new heaven, a new earth, and in a new universe. Of course, this overwhelming judgment to come of humanity at sin has captured the curiosity, the imagination of God's people for thousands of years. To me, it's a bit terrifying a little more than curious. During the days that Jesus walked on the earth and His disciples followed Him, Jesus was talking about the temple and that a day would come when there would be not one rock upon another. He, he spoke of unimaginable events that would befall the earth. And the disciples asked, Lord Jesus Christ, when shall these things be? The ancient Jews wrote what's called apocalyptic literature, literature quite often. It was, it was an extensive subject that they wrote about. And I would assume, I don't know that I completely know my audience, that we might have some curiosity about how these things might unfold ourselves. 
And today, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do in this detail. I'm going to back up a little bit and give us a broader picture. I, I will not give us a, a complete breakdown of eschatology and how these things will all unfold together, but rather over the coming weeks we'll be getting to layer these things together to form a greater picture. But I want you to take your Bibles for today and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 9 as a starting place. And believe it or not, don't watch your clocks, I will get to Revelation 6 before some of you go home. <laughs> Daniel was a prophet. For those of us who have been here Wednesday nights studying the uh, minor prophets, we talked about Daniel some. Daniel was a prophet who lived during Israel's years of exile. We know that Israel was taken away, captive by the Assyrians. About 100 years later, the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, along with the nation of Judah. They destroyed the nation, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple. And the Jewish people of Judah and Jerusalem were taken away captive to the regions of Shinar. We call this Babylon. But at the time, the Babylonian reign came to an end. The Persian Empire rose, usurped it. And Persia was now the world power and God's people still in captivity. Darius was now king of the Medes and the Persians, and this was the day in which Daniel lived. A number of years had transpired that the people had been in Babylon. They were curious about how long they would be there. There were some biblical clues given. They had not really extrapolated those yet. But Daniel in this period begins to pray to God and ask, Lord, help me understand how long your people will be here in this captivity. What, what is, if you will, what is our future? And so verse number one of chapter nine of the book of Daniel, read there with me, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarus, the seed of the, uh, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in words, the Persians now rule the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And so Daniel studies and he prays, and so God gives him insight from the words of Jeremiah. And he says, Daniel, here's what's going to happen. Your people, the Jewish people, will be in captivity for seven years before they can return to Jerusalem. And we are studying these subjects right now in the Minor Prophets, specifically in the book of Zechariah. And that's exactly what happened. About 69, 70 years later, God's people began to come back home. And Daniel prayed and continued to ask God for insight. And so additional information was then given. God is moved by Daniel's um, piety, his sincerity of heart, his purity. We know Daniel was an incredibly godly man. And so he doesn't just answer that question. God goes on to give Daniel um, a greater insight into the end of the world and into the grand eschatology of the universe. And so he chose to give him insight, not just into Israel's immediate future, but the consummation or the end of the age. And, and this is just, all this is so utterly fascinating. So God sends down Gabriel, one of the archangels, one of the mighty creations of the universe. And Gabriel comes to Daniel and gives Daniel a, literally a timeline for history, it's a, it's, a, it's a clock of eschatology. 
And in verses 19 through 24, he, he, he gets very specific. Let's, let's look at our reading. Oh, in verse 19, because I want you to see what's happening here. Daniel begins to pray, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do not and defer not. For thy no sake and for my God, for the city and for thy people, called by name. And so what happens, Daniel begins to, he finds out they're going to be seven years at, at captivity. So Daniel begins to pray and he begins to confess to people's sin. And he says, God, I'm sorry. The people are sor sorry and our nation is sorry. And, and Daniel just goes into this beautiful, contrite, humble um, repentance of prayer. And then all of a sudden, God gives him more. Verse 20, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people in Israel, presenting my supplications, the word means prayer before the Lord, for my God and the holy mountain of my people, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in a vision beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or sacrifice. And Gabriel, the archangel, informed me and talked with me, would that not be awesome? And said, O oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I came to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. What a testimony. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And now some kind of ancient languages given to Daniel to describe the consummation of the age and what's going to happen to Israel in the future. And he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, and this is very specific, to make an end of sins and to make a reconcil reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision, the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In a word, this is before, there's 70 weeks be determined for evil is done away with and righteousness is ushered in. That would be a way of distilling that. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild re Jerusalem, which had not yet happened yet in Daniel's time, until the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Jews knew about the Messiah, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And the street shall be built again, speaking of Jerusalem, and the wall even in troublous times. And we know this occurred during the days of Nehemiah. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. The phrase means to be killed. But not for himself. And of course we understand this. He died for our sins. And the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city that has now been rebuilt and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood and to the end of the war desolation is determined. And he, this unnamed prince, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. And for the overspread of the abomination shall make it desolate even until the consummation or the end of the age. And that shall be determined upon, upon the desolate. Okay, that's, that's a lot of fascinating language. Daniel's told that 70 weeks, basically, let me just summarize. Daniel's told by the angel Gabriel that 70 weeks are left to determine the end of history. Seventy weeks was a Jewish idiom to describe a period of seven years. Okay? Um, so, seventy weeks here is actually seventy times seven, or what we would call 490 years. So, what Gabriel's telling Daniel, from the going forth, from the decree that, by the way, Darius made in Nehemiah chapter 2, to go back and rebuild the temple, from that period, there's going to be 490 years past of Jewish time, 
for the elimination of evil, for the deliverance and in, in, in the imputation of righteousness in the world, and, and then the consummation of the age. Wow. Well, in the text, this 490 years is divided up, though, into segments. And I, I don't want to be technical. It's really not my point today. But I want you to understand. So, he basically says, well, seven weeks are going to go by. And the initial, well, these first seven weeks was the time it took to rebuild Jerusalem. So, that's 49 years. For those who have a computer or a calculator, you can make sure this is right. But there's going to be seven weeks to go by, and then 60 plus two weeks will go by. Um, until the coming of the Messiah. Well, that's 434 years. Okay, so what he says basically is 483 years are going to come before the Messiah is come. You with me? Okay, so how many years are missing? Seven, thank you. Okay, but what's going to happen at the end of the Messiah? He's going to be cut off. And we know this is not for himself, but for sin. And so there are seven years of Jewish time still to be completed. Now, these days compare roughly with the decree from Nehemiah chapter 2 until Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem um, in the New Testament. Okay, it's approximately, that's about 483 years, which the book of Daniel says. The years in the Jewish calendar and ours are a little bit different, so that's not exactly the way we'd understand it, but about 483 years passed. And the Messiah was cut off for the sake of others. And we know this, then the prince reference here in the text is a worldly prince, and most likely this is a reference to Titus, the Roman general, who came and destroyed and sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Okay? So Daniel is told, the end's going to come in 490 years. Seven years, or 49 years is going to be taken to rebuild the city, then, four, and then this 440 whatever it is uh, to get to the Messiah, then the Messiah's going to rule, but he's going to be cut off. And then the prince is going to come and destroy the city, which he did in about 70 A.D. And then there's going to be seven weeks left. Okay? So, most likely here, um, the coming week, not most likely, the coming week is, is still in the future. And, and so, what we see here is God dealing with the Jewish nation. Um, he's dealing with the, the time of the Jews and the time of, of, of their understanding how God worked in the world. And, and, and so, God is saying that there's 49 years, which by the way here, 483 are consecutive, are consecutive, but the last seven are not consecutive, not yet come. 483 years are past, and during that time the Messiah did make an end of sin. He did usher in righteousness. And Jewish time was set aside for a new, uh, I'll use the word, not too theologically, but a new dispensation of grace. This is the mystery referred to in the Old Testament of the Gentiles. And so, for the last 2,000 plus years, we've lived in the age of, of grace in the way it's manifest today. But there are still seven years of Jewish time to be fulfilled. Okay? Everybody's with me? So, what's that going to do with Revelation chapter 6? Well, Revelation chapter 6 is when the clock begins ticking on the seven years. That's what that's about. Revelation chapter 6 brings us to the future. We've already seen the throne room and Jesus Christ presenting Himself as worthy. 
But in Revelation chapter 6, Jesus has already stood up and taken the scroll of the history of humanity. And what was described here for us in Daniel, these last seven years begin to occur as we read Revelation 6. On the earth during this time in the future, a great ruler, peacemaker will arise and he'll capture the hearts of the majority of humanity. He will commission a covenant, most likely with the Middle East, to rebuild the temple. And we'll see an unprecedented time, possibly of world peace for a few moments. And at that same time that that Antichrist is confirming that covenant with the Jewish nation and the world, the events of Revelation 6 will begin to unfold in heaven. The apocalypse will begin. And John begins that vision in our text. John has already seen Jesus as God, Creator, and Savior, the one who gave His life for the church, the one who walks among His church, loving and supporting, but also inspecting and critiquing. John chapter 2 and 3 were letters wrote, written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, most likely representative of all churches in all time. And there He commended and rebuked them. And then in these next few chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, we see this unimaginable vision of heaven that John sees where Jesus Christ is in the midst of it. We see God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ enthroned in the throne room of God. And in this magnificent scene of chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ presents Himself as the only, only one in all of eternity and history worthy enough to open the seal, rather open this book, this scroll that God has in His hand. It's the, it's the title deed of the earth and it records all of human history. And Jesus receives this scroll to the praise of the four beasts, the 24 elders, and a myriad of countless angels and redeemed humanity. On this scroll are seven seals. The contents of the letter contained within um, will be read uh, in the next few weeks in the latter chapter. Before the contents can be read, the seven seals have to be removed. And the seven seals represent seven judgments, very similar to the bowls and trumpets we'll read in about in the next few chapters. So our text takes us to the scene where Jesus takes the scroll to the adulation of the courses of heaven, and He begins to open the seals. One seal at a time, and in so doing, unleashing and initiating what we refer to as the apocalyptic or end time events. In so doing, Jesus Christ asserts once again His Lordship, His sovereignty, His deity, and the fact that He has redeemed mankind and is worthy to open these seals. And before we start here, the events of chapter 6 present themselves. I, I believe the events of chapter 6 are chronological. I can't tell you where in the seven years of tribulation they occur, beginning, middle, or end necessarily. Furthermore, as we continue on the book of Revelation, the book doesn't necessarily proceed chronologically. It might, but I wouldn't understand it as such. Most likely it, it occurs now in somewhat of a loop, highlighting what's already been said in greater detail and color, which we'll discuss as we get to those chapters. But we do know this, that the Lord is speaking of the final days of humanity and God's judgment upon the earth. So once again, I want to take you to another explanatory text and we may have to come back next week to Revelation 6. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And I'm just doing this so you can connect the dots in some of your 
your Bibles on these events and how they coalesce together in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 24 is the text I referenced earlier when Jesus Christ describes the destruction of the temple. His disciples are walking with Him and they inquire, when will this temple be destroyed and when will the end of the world come? The end of the world here is called the eschaton or the actual, this is not the parousia, the rapture which we're not discussing today, but rather when Jesus Christ will come back again on this earth. They're asking when will that day be? And so Jesus hears this question that they have. And so verse 3 of that chapter says, And He sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto Him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of Thy coming, and of the end of the world? So they really don't understand much of the church age completely yet. But they're asking, when is the end going to be? And Jesus gives this answer. For many shall come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. And see that you be not troubled, for these things must come to pass. But the end, He's talking about the final consummation is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Now we can say these events occur all the time and they do. But this phrase beginning of sorrows leads us and gives us some indication that Jesus is talking about the final events of humanity in the early days, what we call the tribulation, or this last seven weeks or seven years of Jewish time that is also referenced in Revelation 6. So he says, this is the beginning of sorrows. He says, and somewhere down the road in, in tribulation, then they shall deliver you to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another. Can you imagine Christians betraying Christians? And shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. A common theme in the book of Revelation. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And it's fascinating the way this gospel will be preached by angels, 144,000 saved Jews. I mean, it's just, it's, the whole thing is an awesome story. But in verse 15, and this is a reference to the book of Daniel. He says, And when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso read, let him understand. He says, basically, they let him flee. Okay, stop. What, what in the world? Daniel prophesied this last seven years of Jewish time yet to come. We call that the Great Tribulation. At the beginning of the seven years, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jewish nation and the people of the Middle East for peace. Halfway through this thing, though, he breaks the covenant. The Antichrist walks into the temple of God. This is the abomination of desolation. He walks into the temple. He stops the oblation. He stops the, all the sacrifices. And he basically says this, I am God. That's a turning point in the tribulation to what we call the Great Tribulation. Okay? And so that's what is being most likely described here in Matthew chapter 24. And, and, and so now the, the, the terror of that day is being described as false Christ shall rise. And uh, verse 28, for where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. This is probably a reference to Israel being surrounded by nations which God will obliterate and in the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to later. But verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The same thing we read in Isaiah in Revelation 6. And the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign, of, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. We just read in the last few verses of Revelation 6. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power great glory. 
And he shall send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together the elect from the four winds, uh, from one end of the heaven to another. And so what we see here is, I just want you to understand what's being said in Isaiah, is being said in, by Jesus and Matthew, is being recorded now in Revelation, and we have a different vantage point of all these things. The day of the Lord is coming. So now what I want to do in two minutes is talk to you about Revelation chapter 6. So if you want to turn there, do that very quickly. Someone asked me to preach this, I'm sorry. So I, I probably would have chosen not to do it. A very quick synopsis of the scene in chapter 6 is Jesus begins to remove the seals. This is where we see the, the four riders of the apocalypse initially. The first seal initiates the release of the first of the four riders of the apocalypse. It's a rider upon a white horse who carries a bow, who wears a crown, and his mission is to conquer the nations. I want to pause here for a moment and say something about the identity of these riders is that it's probably more important to understand what they're doing than who they are. They would bear some similarities to the four riders of the book of Zechariah chapter 1, I believe chapter 9. Where there, there were angelic beings doing recognizant mission on the earth. But here their identities seem a bit different. Their mission here is about executing judgment at the commands of Christ. The four riders could be angelic. Some have speculated the first rider, since he's riding a white horse, is Jesus. And because he wears a crown. But that's insufficient reason to assume he's Christ. Jesus here is giving orders. So for him to be giving orders and then to be one of the riders doesn't make a lot of sense. Others have suggested this is the Antichrist on the white horse, and the others are demonic powers. And Ezekiel does talk about that uh, Satan will have a, create a war during this time of tribulation. But again, that's not implicitly stated. I think it's just, for our purposes, it's best to reason this, that the writers are representative of events that are transpiring on the earth that Christ is superintending. In other words, this is about human agencies running loose on the earth that are being symbolized by these writers. The point here, the first four writers are not so much doing something to the earth, please listen, but they are simply allowing and loosening the restraint of sin that is already present. Amen. Now, that's terrifying. Paul writes about this loosening of inhibition in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now holdeth back will hold him back. Many assume that might be the Holy Spirit until he is taken out of the way. In other words, there are people who believe that in the tribulation that the Holy Spirit will be removed of the earth for, so that the full wrath of God can fall and human sin can run unhindered. And that may be. Regardless, the grace of God is going to recede in some manner, allowing an already dark world to become darker. And that's what the four writers are allowing. And so back to the seal, a king, warrior, the Antichrist, begins to create war on the earth. Verse 4, the second seal is opened, and another rider upon a red horse is given the power to remove peace. He's given a sword to destroy in mass. Chapter 5, the third seal, a black horse, a rider is carrying a balance. The idea of a balance is what this was used to measure grain. And the, the unique language here is about these are exorbitant prices for a little bit of food. So the idea here is this writer brings a famine. And there's limitations. Don't hurt not the barley or the wine. It's probably just a way of, of saying there's limitations to this. Because in this round of plagues, only 25% of humanity is killed. And the next set of plagues, more. 
And so we see some measure of limitation here. Chapter 7, the four seal is a pale rider. The word actually means green. It's the idea of death is the rider. His name is death and Hades. The grave follows him. And he's collecting the souls of those who are dying in the tribulation. The Bible tells the power is given for these four riders to take away a fourth of the earth's population. And, and, and people inquire about the beast here. They'll be eating a beast. All that simply means is this. In ancient wars, a battlefield would be strewn with dead bodies. And not to be graphic, but the beasts of the field would then um, consume those who were dead and dying. It's just a picture of how bad things are. Verse 9, a fifth seal is open. It's juxtaposed to these other four. And what we see here is people who have been slain during the tribulation crying out to God from under the altar and heaven somehow saying, how long are you going to, how long until you forbear and you judge the people who've killed us? This is called, uh, um, I lost the word. It's a prayer of vengeance you see in the book of Psalms. And uh, it's seen there, it's, it's not so much a call to be mean to people, but for the justice of God to arise. And so we see these people doing this. In verse 11, they're given white robes. They're comforted. White robes represent purity, royalty. They're told to be, to be patient until the rest who be slain will join them. In, chapter, in verse 12, then, the sixth seal is opened. And this one's unique and different. I'm going to stop here. What is about to be described are the events of the literal consummation, the end of the age. If I were to guess, I would say this, the first four seals were opened in the first three and a half years of the book of, or sorry, in, in the tribulation. And five and six occur in the second half. Six seal most certainly occurs in the last half of the tribulation because it refers to the very end. And the very end begins with a cosmic earthquake. It's so large it shakes the world and its foundations. It shakes the heavens and the universe. The tectonic plates of the, of the world are moved so that islands and mountains are either submerged or shaken from place. The sun is then darkened and the moon turns red. These are signs of ominous judgment and pending. The stars fall from heaven. This is not a meteor shower. This is a cosmic disturbance described both in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Something is occurring in the cosmos that's shaking its roots and foundations. A disturbance of unimaginable magnitude that somehow we can witness from the earth as God holds us in place. The heaven and sky are split wide open. Another dimension? I don't know. But it's split. And it's furled open to receive the coming Christ. These events create such terror and panic across the globe among people from every socioeconomic class that they, they run to the very mountains that are crumbling before them, begging the rocks to fall on them so they do not have to face their creator. It's, it's the, the epiphany and the epitome of terror. And the question asks, who can stand in this moment? And the answer is no one. These events are awesome and terrifying. What's our response? 
Well, Peter offered a response in 2 Peter when he says, seeing that these things shall be dissolved. And that's what's going to happen. Elements are going to break apart and release their fervent heat. Seeing these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy, holy conversation and godliness? Peter's admonition was that future realities, everybody look up here, I'm almost done, maybe. I want you to get this. Future realities ought to press themselves into present conduct and behavior. Present conduct should be informed by future realities. A great failure we can all be guilty of is neglecting present opportunities to be better prepared for the future. Now that's true in all of life. Today we have opportunity to be ready for our financial future. We can do something about our health today that'll be better tomorrow. We can do something today with our relationships that'll be better tomorrow. Spiritually, we, we could be more like Christ if we would give attention. The truth is we neglect many of these things, somehow pretending the future may not come. But I am telling you, this future is coming. But a second application from the text more directly presents to us not only the future judgments of God, but His judgment specifically on our sin. And the consequences that I want us to comprehend for a moment of our sin and what happens when we are unchecked in the way we live, not just, not, not just in the future, but today. The tribulation, and in part, isn't just about God's judgment on the earth. It's about our judgment on ourselves. How many people have gone through lesser tribulations at your own invitation? Today when we engage in sin, the immediate consequences are not usually cataclysmic and cosmic in scale. But nevertheless, this is still true, sin always results in death. The wages of sin will forever be death and judged. You know, sin always extracts a price. And we engage in sin for some perceptible or appreciable gain in the moment. Pleasure, winning, enriching ourselves at others' expense. But what is often not realized in the moment of giving ourselves a sin is that the sin that pleases us is also killing us. Spiritually and sometimes relationally, financially and socially and emotionally. And it certainly begins to control us. And what we think we are manipulating in time begins to manipulate us. And to give in to sin is, to, is eventually to become its servant. Romans 6, 7, and 8. It becomes a very cruel master. And the irony of the tribulation is the Antichrist thinks he is winning. The kings think they are winning. Those who side with Satan think they are winning, but they are not. And their sin for a time maybe gains them a temporary reprieve or advantage over others. But in the text, they are going to lose. They are going to lose their life. They're going to lose security, their safety, their freedom from harm. They're going to lose their loved ones. They're going to lose their life. And they're going to lose their souls. All because of sin. Sin always cannibalizes itself. And the apocalypse is the final judgment on that sin. And the application is, is this is what our sin brings one day. But in a lesser way, we are bringing tribulation into our lives every time we willfully sin. We think we're winning killing ourselves and others. 
And then thirdly and finally, this is interesting to me, in the midst of the judgments and the fall of the human depravity running rampant, the narrative suddenly shifts, suddenly not unexpectedly, and all of a sudden the scene in heaven, we're, we're given not the judgment, but the face and the voice of the martyrs. It's a collective assembly of martyrs who are crying out to God to be vindicated. It's a reminder that, here's what I want us to take away. This, this is a reminder that God expects of His people, okay? I'm almost done. Look up here. That God expects of His people to be true and faithful to the end. No matter how difficult the journey it is to get there. Surely God understands. What He understands is, is He died on the cross for you. He went through our suffering and shame. He went for our hell. He expects us to be true to Him today. That even in the midst of these kind of incredible cataclysmic circumstances, even in the context of being threatened and killed in mass in the tribulation, God expects us to be faithful and true without compromise, even to our death. When we became Christians, we, became, we, not, we just didn't lay claim to future glory, promises, and blessings, but we were accepting responsibilities as Christ's ambassadors. We accept the call to walk worthy of Christ in all of life's challenges. Jesus told us a servant is not above his master. What Christ suffered for honoring God, we can expect to suffer for honoring Christ. Jesus said if we put our hands to the plow, no matter how hard the road gets to go, you can't take your hands off the plow. This is a reality check for us. If you are not living fully for Christ now, what makes, think, what makes us think we can die for him later? I'm going to, this is, this is a little brutal in its approach, but this writer poised the question this way to us about our ability to be faithful and true. Here's what he said. He said, point a gun at each of the 60 million people who, according to Mr. Gallup's poll, are born again Christians. Tell them to renounce Christ or have their heads blown off and then take a recount. I think George, like Gideon, would find his troops dwindling quickly. Actually the price, actually the price probably wouldn't have to be so extreme today for Christians. Simply threatening to confiscate their TV sets might just produce the same results. When faith is cheap, it is easily pawned. This scene is dramatic, it's awesome, it's, it's terrifying, it's ominous. And in the midst of it, you and I want details about when and how and all this. And what God wants to do is, are you ready? Will you be faithful and true? I, I'm not saying you're gonna face this, but I'm saying this, in the midst of this incredible chapter of eschatology in the end of the age, God just pauses and says, and stuff like this, I expect you to be faithful and true. And that's what he expects from us today. And the point is taken. I don't know what I'd do if I had a gun to my head. But I know this, if I'm not careful, I can compromise at a lot lesser things. 
And Revelation chapter 6 is a reminder to me that my, my sin has consequences and that God's watching my life today. Amen. And so God help us all to walk worthy and to be prepared for the coming cataclysm. Um, we can't be ready for harder times if we're not already ready in the good times. So may the Lord help. Let me ask you to stand if you would.